Hello and welcome to Euroactive's Beyond the Byline podcast. I am Evikiori and this week the European Council will decide on Ukraine's and Moldova's application to accede the EU. The decision will determine whether Ukraine and Moldova will be able to embark on the path toward full EU membership through the candidacy process and will draw trajectories for the region's political development for the years to come. To explain a bit better what this means politically for the EU and the rest of the candidates, I'm joined by Alexandra Brzozowski and Kristina Papusoy, journalist from Radio Kisinau, who is shedding some light on the Moldovan reality and hope to join the EU. We also spoke with Sean Golding Carroll, Euractiv's transport editor, to find out what is happening with the airport strikes all over Europe, why are they happening and what should travelers be aware of. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Christina. Hello. Alex, we might be looking at a historic EU summit on enlargement. Why is this so important? What we really have to remember is that basically never before has an opinion by the European Commission on candidate status been given so quickly. So the war in Ukraine has also given new momentum to the push for enlargement and proposals how to deal with the lack of clear accession process and timelines, as we as we see now, um, are coming up quite frequently. I think Macron's vision of a wider European political community is, is one of them that, that will definitely be discussed for the next next few months. In some sense, the war has brought um, the EU's neighborhood out of the darkness uh, of the backrooms, um, as the enlargement process has been starting for years, as we know. The EU's last major enlargement was in 2004, when, when Poland, uh, the Baltic states and Slovenia joined, and then Romania and Bulgaria folded in 2007. So that's relatively long ago. Um, so not living up to this historical moment now would kind of also spell an end to what has been described as the geopolitical awakening of, of the EU in the recent few months, especially because the connotation would be one of leaving out the countries that are most vulnerable to threats, not only from Russia, but also from other third countries and third players in the region. Um, and this would make the whole strategic shift seem like empty words. So. Obviously, we, we know that enlargement will remain a controversial topic because there has been no progress in the last decade. Um, but I think that is the moment where, where the EU can decide which way it wants to go. Now, there were several EU members that have been very cautious about the upcoming decision. How are the camps playing out now? So I think what we have seen over the past few weeks and months was very intense lobbying and a, basically a charm offensive by the Ukrainian side to win over those that have been have been skeptical of um, approving the candidate status. What we see now before and, and around the summit, um, I think after several days of, of internal EU discussions, there is not much opposition among the 27 to to uh, not grant um, Ukraine candidacy status. I think that's what diplomats have been also repeating. So the, the opinion will for sure be re- reflected in, in the decision. Um, the consensus in favor of granting Ukraine EU candidate status has basically mostly gained momentum after the joint visit to Kiev by German Chancellor Scholz, French President Macron and, and Italian Prime Minister Draghi. So. I think after that, we've seen that member states have started to um, drop their opposition. I mean, the latest were Netherlands and Denmark, those that have said they would especially wait for the recommendation of the commission 
and what it will say. And uh, they also have said they would support uh, its candidacy status. But obviously, also they admitted that there is no illusion that you know this should come with reforms and in parallel also rebuilding the country and that this will be a huge effort um, uh, for the next few months and years. So that's something we will likely see reflected in in, in the summit conclusions, uh, which we've seen a draft of already. So we expect EU leaders to, to stress that progress of each country uh, will depend obviously on own merits and and meeting all the all the criteria, the Copenhagen criteria and and also kind of feed into the whole discussion about the EU's capacity to absorb new members in general. And what would it mean when it comes to the next steps for these countries to have been granted the EU member status? A lot of work and uh, quite a few hurdles actually, uh, Avi. <laughs> Uh, I mean, a first progress assessment report um, on on the conditions that have been set out by the by the Commission in the recommendation will um, probably come with an enlargement package that is to be presented by the end of this year. That's the regular assessment, and um, I mean, what we expect in the next days is also that EU leaders will say that they will decide on further steps once all those commissions basically are fully met. So. For Ukraine, that would mean um, improvement on rule of law, judiciary reforms, um, sorting out everything with oligarchs, and and also adopt the law on national minorities when it comes to fundamental rights. And and for Moldova, it's it's similar areas. So they will have to also fulfill the, the set of conditions um, to move on to the next stage, so to say. But um, both of them moving on would be required to carry out economic and political reforms. And the big question is then how the territorial integrity will be addressed in the further process, because we obviously know that that both of them have issues with that. So they will also start aligning on, on their laws with those of the EU. So, I mean, at time of peace, it took Poland... Um, which is of similar population size and, and similar history, communist history. It took them 10 years from applying for membership in 94 to actually joining in 2004. So uh, I think when we make that comparison and, and also think about Turkey, on the other hand, who got formal candidate status in 99 and, well, is de facto frozen also by its own fault, mostly. Um, I think it, it, it is obviously a process that is that is dependent on the country itself and the domestic issues. Um, it needs to sort out. We also know about the six Balkan countries that um, have also have a complicated uh, way of um, dealing with migration, organized crime and, and mutual disagreements in the region. So it, it really will have to be seen how the domestic issues are um, resolved. I think in the case of Ukraine, it's, it's especially interesting because what, what we know is that, I mean, the Ukrainian government is working, it's fully functional so I think they will do a lot of work already. We saw this week that uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky um, has signed into law the, the Istanbul Convention. So that is, for example, something that has not been specifically in the recommendation of the Commission, but it's obviously one of the steps um, that feeds into the whole fundamental rights issue. So there is willingness to, to work fast. And then um, after that, uh, all of those conditions are fulfilled. Obviously, the painstaking work begins on the accession talks. And should EU member states decide this unanimously, um, uh, but that depends obviously on 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 the political will inside the EU. The more hesitant countries like Netherlands, France, and 
Germany, um, I mean, have been among those opposing bringing new members in in the recent years. So I think then we will have to see what what the political will is like in in a few well, years. And Christina, coming to you, Moldova has been a bit of a dark horse. What does it mean for the country to be considered as well, since if it was not for Ukraine, we might not have uh, seen this push? You know, in Moldova, uh, we are thinking that we are living historical days because we are very close to be part maybe of the European Union. Not now, we are we are understanding that. But also we understanding that we are a very small country, yes. And um, after the war that Russia started uh, in Ukraine, we are thinking that the, the European Union and the Western countries um, start to pay more attention to the Eastern Europe. Yes, of course, uh, the Ukraine, the Ukrainians are now in um, in the middle of a war and uh, they are fighting not just for them, for their country, but they are fighting for us and they are fighting for the whole Europe. So in a way, we can say that if this war wasn't, so maybe it will take more years to be closer to the European Union. And on a more human aspect, what does the step mean uh, for the citizens of Moldova? Just judging by the um, the most recent polls and uh, uh, relative good polls, we can say, almost um, 16% of uh, our population, I mean, it's more than half of our population, want to become, become a part of the European Union. So we will have this feeling that we are not alone in a very difficult time, very difficult time for our country, but also for for the, the world, for the region. And we are struggling with that, this, this danger that uh, it's um, coming from, from Russia. So this is the first part, yes, to be, to feel that you are, Uh, part of something, uh, to be part of a family and to not feel alone uh, in this difficult time. The second part, also the most important, we are thinking that uh, by, for example, getting this candidate status that we are thinking, that we are hoping that will happen. uh, So um, we will have, for example, uh, more opportunities to develop our country. That will mean for us... um, more uh, money and more uh, expertise from the European Union to change, um, for example, the um, justice sector in Moldova that was a very uh, problematic one. Uh, This is one part. The second is, I don't know, even to have a better life for our citizens, to have a better healthcare system, uh, to have um, better universities, it will be meaning that we are choosing uh, an European path because during 
these um, years of independence of uh, of Moldova, um, our society was oscillating between uh, the European Union and Russia. And why is it important when it comes to interior politics? The political majority in uh, our country, in the Republic of Moldova, is detained by a pro-European party. Uh, so also we are having a pro-European president, a pro-European government, and um, uh, the majority of our parliament in the, is also pro-European one. Uh, so I think this um, political choice of our citizens Uh, was uh, also a very important factor uh, when the European Union gave us this uh, uh, clear European perspective. Because in Moldova, we still have parties who are very attached to to Russia. Uh, Even now, when Russia starts a war, Uh, against Ukraine. The former president of the Republic of Moldova, very close to to Russia, so he um, is accused for money laundering, but also for the betrayal of the homeland. It's something very, very serious. Uh, He is part of the opposition now, the opposition party. We will see if the justice is working, because I think we still have problem with um, with this sector in Moldova. And uh, if I remember well, the European Union gave us a lot of money and expertise to to change the, the situation in the justice sector and to uh, do more reforms uh, there. On an economic level, what does it mean? In the past years, um, the volume of exports from the Republic of Moldova to the European Union it was uh, 68%. Um, so it's something very important for us, the, the European Union. So it's very important for, for our economy. But now we are struggling with uh, a huge economic crisis. Uh, so our inflation, it's a, it have reached 29%. We are having this um, energetic crisis because... Um, now uh, we are still depending on the on the Russian gas. Uh, so um, for us to join, but maybe to join is too much, to be closer to the European Union will mean to have more opportunities. What expectations does uh, Kisinau have for the next steps? We are hoping that uh, we will get this candidate status uh, of the European Union. We are understanding that um, there will be conditions for for Moldova. And uh, now people in uh, Moldova and the authorities uh, in in Chisinau are ready to to, uh, work and uh, to do what they need, what we need to do to be closer to the European European Union and to be part of the, the free world. Because um, actually, we really need to be uh, part of a big family and, I don't know, to feel safer in, uh, in that family. Alex, coming back to you, there are more countries that are actually on the waiting list for years, as you mentioned earlier. What is the plan when it comes to the accession of these countries? I think one of the aspects of the summit is that we really see that 
we obviously have the EU Western Balkans leaders meeting in the morning, then then we have the whole discussion about candidate status for for Ukraine and Moldova, and then the wider discussion about wider Europe and and ideas of of association or, or different formats of association of those neighboring countries. So I think when you look at that as a whole package, it's it's quite interesting because there seems to be uh, the understanding that this this has to be discussed in this moment of time. And when it comes to the Western Balkans, I think I mean three of the four Western Balkan EU candidates have come out in support of Ukraine and its candidacy status. They uh, were saying that you know fast tracking Kiev would not really mess up their own slow moving EU integration, but would complement it rather and. I think also there's a bit of the hope that they can ride on the same same train um, as as Ukraine and Moldova. But out of the six other hopefuls, I mean, only Montenegro and Serbia have formally really opened accession negotiations. And Albania, North Macedonia, I mean, they're official candidates, but have been in the waiting room for years. And um, we all know that uh, the issue with Bulgaria might not be resolved anytime soon. Actually, in fact, EU diplomats believe no major progress might might be expected from from either country around the summit, particularly because Bulgaria's uh, six month old government is collapsing again. So, if you put that on one side and then um, look at, for example, at Bosnia, which some EU member states have been arguing um, in the run up to the summit to to be included um, and and also pushed for. It for receiving EU candidate status that was mainly Slovenia and, and Austria. But um, something like that seems also very unlikely because we know the political situation in Bosnia is not is not easy. Um, and out of the, the 14 points of the recent political agreement, currently two to four points are fulfilled. So it seems rather unlikely that there will be um, a stronger message to Bosnia than, than there has already been. Um, but what we do see is that there is resentment growing in the region, why nothing is moving. That's not necessarily vis-a-vis Ukraine but, uh, or, or the other um, aspirants, but it's more, um, I mean, we, we've seen that, for example, with, with Serbia together with Albania and North Macedonia threatening not to, not to show up uh, to the summit. So I think there will be a very difficult discussion uh, that will follow the summit and probably, you know, in the next few months, where it has to be defined what the EU's idea for the region is. And Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Christina. You're listening to Euractive's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on euractive.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge on other fields, you can listen to our Digital Brief podcast and AgriFood Brief podcast. And if you have any comments or ideas, you can email us at podcasts at euractive.com. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thank you very much. Traveling has returned to normality almost After the COVID-19 restrictions, we see the number of travelers rising day by day. Plus, summer season is here and it is one of the busiest periods of the year when it comes to traveling. However, there have been some disruptions with a number of airports in different countries not operating properly. So what is happening exactly and why do we have these disruptions? Well, you're absolutely right that there have 
been serious disruptions uh, across Europe. Um, it, it, it's difficult. There are a number of different reasons for this, but um, to put it uh, in one sentence, it's because of labor shortages. So if we look back to 2020 um, at the outbreak of the pandemic, essentially the aviation sector shut down. Um, you might recall that basically the grounded flights, um, countries closed their borders. So what this means is that a lot of uh, airlines, airports, they had to lay off staff. So we saw a lot of people in the aviation sector lose their job. And now that they, well, the pandemic's not over, but it's gotten better uh, and there are less restrictions. Now there's huge demand to travel again, but there isn't the staff members. So we're, we're not seeing enough um, people doing security clearance. We're not seeing enough people doing, um, you know, baggage handling, uh, cabin crew members. There's a serious shortage uh, of these staff and therefore we're seeing huge queues and tailbacks and problems with flying. So we went from uh, empty airplanes and airports to packed airports, chaos and packed flights. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not really a surprise, right? If you can't travel for two years, uh, there's going to be a pent up demand. I mean, people want to see their family and friends and even just explore Europe again. Um, so it's not coming as a surprise, but it seems to uh, yeah, have taken airports and airlines by surprise that they're seeing this level of demand. Sean, can you give us some facts and figures on how was the situation before the beginning of the pandemic in terms of employees on the transport sector and how is it now? Well, globally, um, it's estimated that uh, 2.3 million uh, staff members who are employed in the aviation sector lost their job as a result of the pandemic. And in Europe, um, I mean, tens of thousands of employees uh, were let go um, because, I mean, as I said, aviation just came to a standstill. Um, the issue now is that they're trying to recruit people back because there is this demand, but a lot of workers don't want to return. And uh, the most prominent reason for this is uh, they don't feel that the uh, pay conditions are attractive enough. And they also feel that the, the working hours um, are, are not very attractive. Um, there's a lot of um, criticism of some of the contracts that are being offered by um, airports. Uh, for example, in Dublin Airport, um, you are only guaranteed, for example, 20 hours a week, but you have to be available the full 40, even though you may not get to work them. Um, so a lot of people who used to work in the aviation sector have now moved to other industries and have just decided not to go back uh, into uh, airports or airlines. So what needs to be done then is to recruit new staff. But the issue with this is um, a lot of the jobs for, you know, working on a plane or working in an airport, they're quite sensitive in terms of security. So it takes a long time to recruit people. Um, for, for some jobs, uh, in, in a, if you want to work in a French airport, it can take up to five months to get the requisite security clearance to actually do the job. And how can this affect the travelers, but also how can it affect the companies? There's real horror stories coming out of airports. We see travelers queuing for, you know, six hours. I've heard up to eight hours. Um, people who are queuing outside of the terminal, stretching all the way down to the road. Uh, and then we have passengers who have missed flights. Uh, Dublin Airport had over a thousand passengers miss flights as a result of the queues in one day. Um, 
so I mean the, the air travel experience is really uh, quite difficult at the moment. Um, so this is this is bad for passengers who are you know planning their holidays, booking their flight, and then often not making it onto that flight, uh, and then losing you know their deposit for hotel or accommodation or whatever as well. Um, in terms of the uh, companies, so obviously they don't want this to happen. Um, what we, we may see is that people just you know elect not to fly because they don't want to go through this experience. Maybe they'll try and shift to another transport mode. Uh, so really, it's not good for passengers and it's not good for companies either. Is there any action taken already? Um, well, there's no quick fix solution. Uh, I mean, Ryanair have said that what uh, airports should do is bring in the army to basically do security clearance to help you know pat people down if they go through the metal detector and it buzzes. Um, it's hard to know if they're being serious. <laughs> Sometimes they say things for publicity. But, um, I mean, what what needs to be done is it's just more recruitment of staff. Um, and this, as I've said, takes time. Uh, but until, you know, the staffing levels are adequate, we're going to continue to see these, these delays. Um, the other option is that demand falls. So if people do decide that they, you know, they're going to postpone their trip or they're going to try and travel by train or car or, or whatever other mode, um, then maybe, you know, we won't see these delays just because there's a fall in demand. And as a note to our listeners, which are the airports that uh, experience the biggest problems? Uh, well, I mean, it's really all over Europe. Um, Amsterdam Schiphol Airport has been in the news for experiencing huge queues. Um, Chat de Gaulle in Paris um, has also been affected. Dublin Airport's been affected. Um, airports across the UK. I mean, it's really a Europe-wide issue. And what about the strikes on a national level? On Monday, we saw here in Belgium, but also in the UK, that there were strikes uh, on a national level. Are they happening for the same reasons? Or what are the workers asking for? Yeah, I mean, it's really a perfect storm. Um, so we're seeing rising inflation, of course. Um, and as I said, what's being offered to um, new recruits um, has been described as inadequate by trade unions. Um, and also for the, for the staff members that remained in their job during the pandemic, many of them took a pay cut. Um, and these pay cuts haven't necessarily been uh, reversed, even though we're seeing increased demand. So we're seeing less staff being asked to do more um, amid rising inflation and with perhaps lower salaries than they would have got some years ago. Um, so for these reasons, uh, you know, staff members have decided that they would that they will strike in order to try and get management to uh, increase their wage. So, uh, as you said, Brussels Airport, um, there was a, a walkout of security staff, uh, which saw over 200 flights um, grounded. Um, there's also been strikes in Italy, strikes in France, and there's yeah, there's also talk of British Airways potentially going on strike over the summer. Uh, so, this, again, as there are issues with airports, there are also potentially industrial action across Europe. And lastly, what's the wise thing to do? What's the advice for travelers? Um, so the wise thing to do is to expect delays, like mentally prepare yourself. You're going to have to stand in a queue for a long time. Uh, but also, you know, check that your flight is going ahead. Um, follow the advice of the airports. Check uh, they often on Twitter or on their website, 
give an estimation of how long the queues are and give um, advice about how far in advance uh, you should show up and try and stick to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, there's no magic bullet. It's it's essentially just mentally preparing yourself and following all the advice. Well, thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me. I am Evikiori and this was your Active's Beyond the Byline podcast. We will be back on your feed next week. Visit youractive.com for the latest news. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on your favorite podcasting app. This episode was produced by me with the help of Alexander Brzozowski, Christina Papusoy and Sean Galding-Carroll. Thank you very much for listening. 